Welcome to the How to Code Well podcast, a show all about web development and programming. My name is Peter Fisher. I am a freelance web and mobile applications developer. Hello coders, today we're going to be talking about a podcast that I've been regularly listening to and that is the Iteration Podcast. Now who better to talk about the Iteration Podcast than the host John Jacob. Hello John, how's it going? Welcome to the show. Hey, it's going great. Thanks so much for having me. Excellent, excellent. Have you had a good week? Oh, great week. Yeah, super productive. Super exhausting, but it's wrapping up. It's happy Friday here. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. So you're the host of the Iteration Podcast. You're also joined with JP. You talk about books and you go through each chapter of the book on your episodes and other bits and bobs. We're going to be diving into all of that stuff and more later on, but let's just focus now on your background and how you actually became a software developer, because I think that's really, really interesting to get some context. So how did you get into the industry? Yeah, great question. So I have always been interested in code and computers and tech since I was a kid. And I was always still very interested in design for a really long time. And so all through high school and college, I did a lot of album cover art and dabbled in photography and did some skateboard designs for some little regional companies. And I feel like every time you're a graphic designer, you end up bleeding into doing web. (laughs) I feel like other designers I talk to, it's like, oh, I end up doing a WordPress site or Squarespace site. And a lot of that kept happening more and more. But then at some point I'm like, okay, out of college, what am I going to do? And I actually went into the corporate world, didn't really go into code, but through that whole time, always kept a steady practice of freelance work, doing design work, Mm -hmm. little bit of web work here and there, mm-hmm. always dabbled more and more in code, you know, getting some HTML going, getting some JavaScript, but still on top of CMS systems. So it would always be WordPress, Squarespace, like pushing those things further and further. But when I got into the context of this corporate world, I was a supply chain manager and our systems there used a, a SQL database. Mm-hmm. And I started playing with the SQL database and realizing more and more that half the people at that job, all they did was answer email by checking what's in a SQL database and mm-hmm. go back and forth or move data from one spreadsheet to another. So like everyone in the company, many people in the company were unfortunately just kind of scripts that move data around. Right. Um, and, and so honestly, I started playing with the SQL database and writing more and more queries. And it was this like odd tension between the joy and pride of automating things, but then watching people getting let go and me mm. getting promoted. It was like this really ugly truth of software that <laughs> it really impacts direct people. But at the same time, like I knew it was the right thing. And ultimately, it's not good for any of us to have someone sitting doing a job that a computer could be doing. So right. long story short is in that role, I started playing more and more with just simple scripting and Microsoft Access and these custom SQL queries and building little web interfaces to it and just mm. started learning more and more as I went. Mm. And I did that for a solid year in that corporate job and automated so many of the things there and realized I absolutely fell in love with this whole idea of just automation and moving things forward. And it was just really incredible. And so through that experience, I realized like, okay, this is what I've got to do long term. I quit the corporate job and I was like, I could continue (laughs) to try to do it here, but I'm going to quit this and I want to just really invest in this. So I took about a, I took about a year and I dug deep into code. So this was the end of 2014 going into 2015. And I really just went deep. I first started with Python for some crazy reason. (laughs) I did some PHP. And then finally, I found Ruby on Rails. And for me, once I found Ruby on Rails, it would just 
thought the way that I thought and I was so productive so quickly. Right. Yeah. Um, so I went through a couple of like online courses and books for Ruby on Rails and then finally I kind of wrapped everything up in later 2015, mid 2015. I went through uh, a boot camp uh, general assembly down in Santa Monica here. I'm in, near the LA area. Right. Uh, and that kind of formalized all of the piecemeal knowledge that I had and put together that boot camp. And then from there, I jumped right into my first kind of startup building a platform right there, right out of boot camp. And so from there, I've slowly built my career over time, uh, moving into just more and more freelance work, kind of working with startups and building MVPs from there. That's that is an awesome, awesome story, a development journey uh, of an entrepreneur that has gone and, and, and grabbed hold of this technology, Ruby, that is really, really, I, there's lots of people that I've spoken to who've just, who have just said that Ruby is such an enjoyable programming mm -hmm. language to use. Um, personally, I don't use it um, all the time. Uh, I've dabbled into it a couple of times, but nothing, uh, nothing. I wouldn't ever say that I was an expert in it at all. Um, most of my freelance clients are PHP, uh, some are Python based. Um, but that is, that is such a, a great, a great introduction into how you became a software developer and you've got a, the firm you've got is better that's correct, mm -hmm. right? Better. Yeah. Yep. How many We're people? We're called Better. Better.dev is that where you can find us on the web. How many people do you have working working there? So we've got four full time plus me, and then a couple other piecemeal contractors that we use pretty consistently. Okay, cool. How did that? How did the transition between that happen? <laughs> between sort of like first of all, you were learning uh, code, you were learning mm -hmm. databases, and then you were learning Ruby. And then you fell in love with that, and then you decided to to go freelance. What was the thing that 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 pushed you into that direction? Yeah, into going freelance and versus working like a more traditional job as a coder, like in house uh, as a freelancer. Yeah, you know, I really wanted to work with early stage startups. I've okay. loved entrepreneurial entrepreneurial ventures since right. I was a kid. My parents are small business owners, and so I I always knew I wanted to work in the startup space. Mm -hmm. um, and frankly, I didn't have the credibility or chops to be able to work in a real quote unquote startup. So okay. I did a lot of like Google hackathon weekends, just trying to find founders who would take a risk on me and take the little bit of money they had and build a product together. And finally, found that when I built Wiz Tutor. That's actually how I met. JP, who's the co-host of um, the Iteration Podcast, yeah. is we built that first project kind of together. He was the designer on that project. And so it was a matter of necessity more than choice in right. that I chose to work with these very early stage founders and kind of by necessity in that case, then you're a freelancer, you're a contractor. It's kind of like we sit down and we think, okay, what is the price to build this thing? What's the mm -hmm. small piece of equity? Mm -hmm. And let's build that MVP and just kind of go. <laughs> and right. so yeah. it's kind of that more informal relationship. And so it was more out of necessity that my skill level and credibility wasn't there. But then over time, essentially what happened is these startups, these MVPs that I built, you know, six months later, I look up and I think, wow, this is a real product with thousands of users and this is mm. a real thing. Mm. And then all of a sudden, like I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, well, we're far past MVP. And now I, I have built some of that credibility and other founders are seeking to build these types of work. And so I, it just kind of, I, it just happened with consistent work, just keeping heads down, building, 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 working with several founders. Mm. And when I looked up, I'm like, oh, well, I'm building real products now. <laughs> like, this is pretty great. Awesome. That's really, really good to hear. Um, what, so you went to a couple of Google, you said Google, Google, um, 
hackathons. Is that right? Hack, hack spaces. Yeah. Is that so right? they used to do these things called startup weekends, okay. uh, at least here in California. We had, I think they were international. And so it was through the Google entrepreneurial venture platform. Uh, okay, or right. Like yeah. That. Yep, yep. And so every one of those I could find, I would go to those hackathons. They were just fantastic. So they were called startup weekends. I also did a lot of other code hackathons where I could anywhere where I could get in a room and be overly more confident than my skill set <laughs> and try to show what I could do and make buggy software really quickly mm. and, and just show that I could try to strike the right balance between something that provided user functionality quickly and mm -hmm. something that was technically semi-competent mm -hmm. at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, to be frank, like when in early 2015 ish, when I was first writing code, it was a lot of spaghetti code. But, you know, I feel like that's the right choice for some founders. I mean, if you've got 10 grand to build your MVP, you're going to have a lot of spaghetti code. You're going to mm. be web only mm. and you're going to get something that's going to be in the world that will work. But it's like, man, don't look under the hood because there's there's rats and raccoons running that car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so. You know, it's been one of the challenges in my career is kind of jumping from that very, very scrappy mentality mm. to to making sure that I mature my skill sets and products with my clients. You know, right. they're no longer have two or 300 clients. They have thousands of end users and a lot more scale. And so we need to think deeper about things like testing, about code quality, mm. about architectural mm. design from the beginning. Mm. And so it's been a really interesting journey, really moving from this very scrappy mentality, very bootstrap mentality into more of a mature agency that right. really is responsible with code in a deep way. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess that sort of um, falls on your the strapline of, of better where it's you're focusing mm -hmm. on sustainability and simplicity and it's something that, something that resonates with me when i when i listen to the iteration uh, podcast is is that you 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 and jp are talking about good practices um quite a lot and it, it and you're talking about it from your experiences with your projects, which, which I find absolutely fascinating as someone who doesn't do a lot of Ruby. It's very nice to have that sort of insight, um, to that, but what, what kind of clients does better have? Yeah, great question. So we work with startups mostly. So oftentimes at first it was all MVPs. So mm -hmm. you're a founder with the back of the napkin at web app or, you know, app idea, platform idea. And we would build that first version kind of as cheaply as possible to get you to the point where you could raise more funding, get your initial users and go from there. More and more though, we've been doing the kind of second round of build. So okay. oftentimes clients come to me now with an MVP, a working prototype with a couple hundred users or that first version, that first round of funding, we've been building that first version. And so we're trying to find that kind of sweet spot of where we look like mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and what phase you are in. Yeah. But oftentimes it's a web app only. Oftentimes we're also doing a mobile app component via React Native with an API backend. Okay. So more and more we're working with clients where we're providing the entire platform. They want to be everywhere and we'll put them everywhere on yeah. web, on Android and iOS. And I mean, luckily we leverage Ruby on Rails and React Native and we're able to do so with very minimal code and very small team because, you know, five developers total are currently running and developing five active startups right now, <laughs> um, which is a lot of productivity. And it's not a testament to our skill set, although we do have skills there, but it's a testament to how far technology has gotten and how incredible these tools are. Mm. I mean, things mm. like Heroku and Ruby on Rails and React Native mm. can push so much productivity mm. so fast out of such a 
small team. And, mm-hmm. and we see this with other companies like Basecamp is one I think of all the time. Mm-hmm. And I, I look to that entire team of Basecamp as absolutely the pinnacle of what you can do on a small team mm-hmm. with a lot of intention. And it's incredible what that team produces. Okay. And for, for those that don't know, what, what, what is MVP? Oh, great question. Yeah. So MVP would be minimum viable product. Okay. And so basically what that means is it's just the most basic, ugly working version of your product you can. <laughs> and it's not intentionally ugly, but it's ugly by nature because you're just doing what you can to get your product live as soon as possible. Mm-hmm. And so in the space of startups, there's kind of this balance between taking the time to invest deeply in your product and having a refined experience for your user, which Mm. is important, Mm. but the realities of the constraints of how much cash is in the bank and where you're at as a company. Not every startup has the opportunity to be venture-backed and have millions or hundreds of thousands of dollars in funding. Sometimes it's friends and family rounds or one little incubator round that they've got, and we've got Mm -hmm. to build what we can from that. That's really interesting. And just to pick on that point about um, trying to do as much as you can with as little resources as possible. I was actually in a meeting recently um, where they were trying to come up with this solution. They had an appalling data structure, which last, which they've had (laughs) for like decades, right? So doing anything in in a form would require like tens if not 20 30 database calls it was a mess there was no there was no orm there was nothing um and we we didn't have any budget to 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 make this better um because it would have taken a long a lot of time plus there were um thousands and thousands of records that we would have to retrofit to whatever structure we were going to put in place um the the thing was the, the, the whole emphasis of the, the, the new release was to do a reskin of the existing site. What we ended up doing, unfortunately, um, from my point of view, was creating uh, an iframe. So we iframed the existing forms into a new skin. Now, it's, not, it's certainly not great, certainly not mm-hmm. perfect, because you, you, you are exposing a window into the old system. Right, but it looks so much better, um, mm. and that was the the remit of the of the the product requirements. It was like we need to make this look better. We don't need to make this perform better. We don't need to make this right. you know, any more efficient. We just need to make this look better to 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 get to the first round of delivery. The next round, yeah, then we can actually pull apart and and look at these things. We also we also um, were able to style the um, the iframe or the contents within the iframe, because we also had access to the underlying code, the existing mm. code. Um, so we were, we were able to do a little bit of fancy stuff, but we weren't touching the actual business logic behind it because right. that was just a bag of spanners. Um, and we just didn't ha- have any money uh, at all. And I, you know, I kept saying, as long as you are, aware that this this isn't this isn't a new shiny toy right. it's not right? a new website it's not all. a new website yeah. it's, it's just a, it's just a new wrap around um yeah. so uh, you know from i guess from an entrepreneurial point of view it's great because that means that there's more work in the future but from a, from someone who really likes to have good practices really likes yeah. to work on nice looking code where there's all sorts of tools that we're using at our disposal, an ORM, um, the database is performing much better, and all of this jazz. Um, it was it was a bit of a hard pill to swallow, but it mm. was a pill to swallow because 
I was aware of the business needs. Um, yeah, so so I totally get what you're saying there about having to scale down the requirements to fit the the, the, the budget type thing. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's not even a budget. Maybe it's just the requirements of the current system that they don't have control yep. over. Uh, it's not always financial constraints. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think your iframe example is a perfect example of the types of solutions we try to come up with for mm. earlier stage projects yeah. to get them out the door and get it moving. Because you know you could build an Instagram clone for $500 in a weekend mm. for $5,000. You could mm. you could pick any budget and you yeah. could build an Instagram clone yeah. digitally. It depends on what you're doing and what that looks like. And Mm -hmm. I think it's really, I think to be like a a good artist understands that their art and their craft is important, but also understands the commercial aspect of their art. That's right. And I think to be a successful programmer in our space, like you have to be a little bit of a sellout in that way. Mm. You can't expect to be able to fully just focus on the Mm. beauty of your code and the perfection of your code and expect that every client's going to pay for all of that. Because at the end of the day, your client with this reskinned iframe, they probably don't care at all or fully understand why it's not skinned at all. And I want to be clear that I am not advocating for writing junky code and not taking the time to Mm. invest in good practices. But it's about understanding what you can do now and doing the best with what you have and making the right compromises at the right times. And and it's all about that technical debt and those compromises as you go through that process. Also, when I'm working with clients and um, I'm on, on, for some reason, I'm on a lot of legacy projects right now, which I... um, (laughs) And you're you're always playing that that journey of discovery to work out where the... What decisions were made before you, and it's very easy to go. Well, this programmer didn't know what he was doing. He he, he mm. put in bad practice, left, right, and center. But <laughs> until you actually understand the the decision process of this, so one thing I try and push is documentation. So just writing documentation to define why these processes are put in play. But yeah, no, I totally totally get where you're coming from. Um, MVP is something that it's a term that that I I probably should float around more often in terms of of the clients. Um, it's sort of a nice little term that you could parcel up and say, well, we're doing an MVP rather than you know a, a reskin because that has different For sure. that has different connotations as to what that could be. It's also as a sales tool, as an agency or a freelancer. You know, it's easy for someone to come with you with an app idea and Mm. for you to hit them back with a proposal that's $50,000 because they want to build a mobile app and the web app component and all these different things. And and that sales process of something like that, which I've closed deals like that, that sales process Mm. is months and it's a whole journey in itself. But what I've realized very quickly is that if you change a proposal to be just an MVP, let's build the thing we can build in a month together. Mm -hmm. Let's build that together. It's the sales cycle is so much different. You can Mm -hmm. close the work faster. You get them in the door faster and you get their company getting validation and traction earlier. Definitely, Like your partners earlier from the start in this process of building an ever changing thing from the start instead of this old school waterfall approach. And so not only is the original yes from the client easier, but it's a lot more realistic of how actual software and startups are built, that Mm -hmm. it grows over time. It's an Mm -hmm. iterative process. You know, every month we're shipping new code on this and, you know, selling work is always easy to sell more work against that. And so instead of building their product with the 18 features, let's build it with the four essential features 
in a month or two and then continue to grow the relationship from there. And, and that's really what I've done with my freelance journey since day one, you know, for the last four years or so. Mm-hmm. And I have just slowly glo- grown with all of my clients and added new that are slowly growing and all the work just continues to grow across board. Right. And it's really been really successful in that journey. And that's mm-hmm. really why I, I was kind of forced to start an agency at some point because there was just so much more and more growth and demand and health from all of these companies that it's like they all need need more changes and I can't do all this work. Yeah. And then all yeah. of a sudden I'm working so consistent with three or four contractors. It's like, oh, you're employees now? Oh, we're a company? Okay. It just kind of like right. looked up from the steady work and growth from there. But it was all about just selling small work and just continuously investing and growing and taking ownership of these projects right. to really kind of curate this garden of people and yeah. projects that I work with. It's it's incredible opportunity. Do, do, you, um, do you create any plugins or modules that you can then apply to existing clients or new clients if if yeah, someone says i've got question. if someone says hey i've got this i've got this uh thing this feature <laughs> c- can you go well hang on a minute i've i've just sort of created something similar can you parcel that up Have, is that something oh, that you've done there's definitely opportunity for that of course like there is there is um, some nuance to that at times, depending on the relationship with the client. Mm-hmm. So some of the projects I have direct ownership in, in some in one case, I was a co-founder of that project. So okay. if I'm a co-founder, I can do whatever I want with that code. Mm-hmm. I can port it all I want and all those opportunities. Yep. In other cases, I've had two clients. I have that unique case right now where I have two clients requesting the same feature. And I literally put them in touch and I said, you guys negotiate how much you want to cover. Here's mm-hmm. the bill. It's one bill. I'll charge one time for this. And so it's actually this incredible opportunity. I could have, as that person gone, oh yeah, I'll build it for you. I'll build mm. it for you. And, and been dishonest mm. in that relationship. Yeah, yeah. But honestly, that's just, it never pays off long-term. And so in mm. that case, what I've done in the past is they will actually just split the bill together and then use the code in each of their projects. And all of my clients are always, of course, very eager to do so. The thing we've been doing more and more lately though, and I'm pushing my founders to understand and be mm. a part of is that we will, we've been working to start packaging things up into Ruby gems and other open source projects. Uh And I'm really excited about this direction. Mm -hmm. And I'm really excited that I've been able to get some um, founders on board to be benefactors of those projects. And because it's like, this doesn't cost you anything and it's such great publicity. And Mm -hmm. it also helps me attract talent from my team and helps us all grow credibility together as a company. So they're essentially, you know, if I'm building a feature for client A, I will um, approach them in a way that allows us to structure that into a gem that can be used across all the projects. So yeah. this is something that we've just started a journey of, but we're really excited to start digging into more and more. Um, and even, you know, working with my clients so that in the gem and in the documentation, it's, it's sponsored by them. They get the SEO, the credit and for them as an organization for them, for future hiring and all those other things, like it's so much better to have that type of exposure and shared code. Mm. So it, it's been an easy sell, which was surprising to me because, you know, they're like, Oh, that's my source code. I'm paying you to write it. And that could be the way that they view it. And I would understand that view and I would respect that if that's what they thought. But in general, many of my founders, as long as it's, of course, um, anonymized from their specific use case, mm-hmm. are very open to some of the code being shared in some contexts. Okay. So what what um, what kind of uh, industries are your clients in? Do you, do you go for a specific set of industries? Yeah, that's an interesting question. When I first started looking at code, I I saw three big problems in the world that I really wanted to contribute to as as just a human being. Mm-hmm. And it was healthcare, 
education and housing were the three big things that I had a big passion about. I've yet to found a great, find a co-founder for a housing project. So as a result, we've done a lot in education and a lot in healthcare. Specifically healthcare, we do have done a lot in. Um, as well as the other niche we found is marketplaces. So okay. you know, bringing two users together and taking a small cut of that transaction uh -huh. is another thing that we've kind of found a niche into because we have a lot of experience with some of those APIs and requirements. So I, I'm just thinking like, what you were saying about um, sharing code and those kind mm -hmm. of industries. Uh, I'm assuming that if it was more of an e-commerce type of industry, uh, they would be less likely to share the code around because it would be restraint to their particular project. I don't know. I'm just making an assumption here. But yeah. the, the, um, the, the the three pillars that you were talking about, they, they seem to be um, a, a less... Uh, tailored towards making a lot of money um, because they're not Definitely. necessarily in e-commerce. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's this weird, I mean, I don't know what it's like over there, but there's this weird sort of like um, feeling here that when you're working on an e-commerce project, a lot of the time the code is, you know, the soul of the, of the, of the, of the, uh, of the system of the website and therefore it can't go anywhere else. So uh, a lot of the projects that I've been working on, in the past, um, I've had to duplicate code from other projects because that that, that question of can I use this code um, gets brought up, and the answer is usually no. Mm. Um, but in some cases, um, not. But um, in sometimes it has been. But you know, it's always good to have that conversation. Um, and um, at the end of the day, a lot of the um, the stuff that I've been working on is based on frameworks. Frameworks are open source. So at the end of the day, it's open source code. There's obviously the, like the custom stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually, that's actually the other thing we've been reaching for more and more is in trying to invest and standardize around specific open source projects. So for example, in our mm -hmm. world, devise for Ruby for authentication, we pretty much just standardized all of our projects around it. And so we have a best practice of how to use that open source project within the context of startups, within the context of a marketplace. Okay. And so we've been investing in making sure that we have good existing open source projects and also in some cases, like I said, we're in the process of contributing to those with publicly publishing some of our revisions and change and tweaks to those things. Sounds good. That sounds really, really good. So let, let's let's divert our attention to your awesome podcast iteration. Um, for those that 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 haven't don't know of the podcast, um, what is the concept? Okay. Yeah. Awesome. So the concept is we go through kind of tough technical coding books mm. chapter by chapter. So one episode of the podcast is just one chapter of a specific coding book. Yep. And so a season of the podcast, if you will, is just one book and we go chapter by chapter walking through that book. Mm -hmm. That is so cool. I, I, I have listened to several episodes um, and it, it is really interesting to hear another developer think through their their daily problems in the context of, of, 
of a chapter of a book. That's so, how did you come up with that idea? Because that is such a, an interesting. <laughs> it was such an accident. Clever like idea. so many things, I feel like in, in my life, me and JP. So we worked together. The way that me and JP, my co-host of Iteration, met is we first started working together in 2016, uh, doing Wiz Tutor together. He was the designer on that project, uh-huh. and he didn't code at all at the time. Unbelievable, and it's been incredible to watch his journey from 2016 to now. Not even three years. He is far surpassed my programming skills in like two years. It's incredible to see him dig in and own code in such a deep way. Um, But the long story short of how Mm. we initially got there is through his coding journey and through some of that time working together, Mm. we would often swap programming books and like, I'll be like, hey, I'll pay for that online course. We'll both take it. We would do lots of things like that back and forth with each other. And at, at a certain point, the WizTutor project kind of closed out active production and went more into maintenance mode. And we were working together less and less. Mm-hmm. And we also got in two separate physical locations. So he was living somewhere down in LA. I moved north to Ventura area about an hour away. Okay. And so we were, we were apart from each other, but we were still kind of texting back and forth, different books, recommendations. And so we really wanted to start doing like a weekly phone call to work through some of the material of the books. Right. And so when it, because it's just like, it's so much better to kind of go through a book with someone, especially some of these tougher technical books yeah. and to have yeah. that accountability and second person's brain to pick of what that mm-hmm. means. Mm-hmm. And like literally in that, I'm like, well, instead of a phone call so we can screen share code and stuff, why don't we do it on Google Hangouts? Mm. And then it was like, on a whim, days before we were having our first like book club, if you will, that's all this was, was a digital book club. Days before I'm like, what if we just hit record? Like, what do you think? Like did a podcast, try to get a bigger community around what we're trying to learn, try to get other people, you know, with their mm. input and perspective. Mm. And he was just like, eh, all right, whatever. <laughs> like that was very much the first season was just like, let's just turn on the recording. And mm. it was like right away when you published it, we got a pretty great response, mm. even with at the time, very low production, very poor planning, um, very little thought. And how we did it beyond just reading the chapters and talking about it on the back end. So that's kind of how the format came up is just wanting to do a book club and then just hitting record and going from there. That's really, really interesting. Have you used books as a means of learning um, over, say, video um, when Mm. you are learning your skills? Where does that fit in terms of the resources that you use? That's a great question. I think early in development, I strongly recommend video courses. I feel like you need to really see and understand the code and have more context. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a great book called Four Hour Chef um, by the guy who does the Four Hour Workweek, Tim Ferriss, and it's a book all about learning. Uh, Tim Ferriss is a whole can of worms that I don't want to open, but. Four Hour Chef has this idea of conceptual learning where mm-hmm. you're kind of picking up different building blocks and going mm-hmm. from there. And you can kind of piece all these different skills together, even from different domains. You know, things that I've learned with playing, learning to play the guitar definitely have applied to learning to code and some of the frustrations and nuances of that for sure. Oh, and wow. so I think that there's some interesting things to take from there. So I think when you're early in your journey, video is the right format. But once you learn enough of those conceptual building blocks where mm. you can string stuff together, mm. I think that books are far more efficient than video. When I take video courses now, I feel like I'm skipping half the modules. I'm fast forwarding. I'm just like looking at the code and going through it. So I think it depends on the person, of course. But for me, Mm -hmm. I have found that video was very helpful very early 
first six months, nine months of learning to code. But then once I under had enough of these conceptual building blocks, then the books are far, far more efficient just to be able to skim and move through. And there's a lot more thought put into a book than any other format out there in general. There's right. just a lot of editing process and a lot of thought to the words that actually make it out of the page. I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. I was um, asked um, a few months ago to, to work on a book and uh, just getting the chapters was such mm-hmm. a, a, a task. It was just so, because you, you were trying to think of the, trying to keep it nice and short and sweet, but you were trying to um, think of what the, the reader would be asking. And that was at, at different points of the book. And that was, I found that quite challenging. It's almost as bad as, as, as trying to work out the right title for a video on YouTube, <laughs> but you've got several chapters in this thing. Yeah. Um, and then you're trying to do it in a way that is a, a journey is, is, you know, you don't, you, you, do, you certainly don't want to be teaching something that needs to be taught like before something, you know, after something else and all that jazz. Yeah. But you, you mentioned something that I just want to p- p- pick on. And that was that you, you, um, you, f- you found that learning was very similar to learning the guitar, you know, mm, learning. For sure. Learning. There was, there what, was con- concepts that related for sure. What were those concepts? I think one of them is just consistent practice. Yeah. And I think a lot of coders think if they get the knowledge, then they'll be done. Like, mm-hmm. oh, if I just memorize the syntax, then I'll know how to code. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's something that I talk about all the time. I think 20 hours spent over the course of two months broken up is far more efficient than 20 hours compacted in the context of learning because your brain needs time to absorb that knowledge. So Mm -hmm. instead of spending 20 hours on a weekend, spend 15 minutes, 30 minutes a day learning to code. You'll be far more productive in your journey. I think for most people, everybody learns different. That's the bottom line. But I think trying to just shove stuff into your brain doesn't work. The pipe's only so big. It can only accept so much new information. So I think the first one is consistent practice. Yeah. I think the second one is, um, it's skill-based in a way so that I feel like people with talent, I don't have much talent with guitar, but people with talent with guitar can learn very few concepts. They learn one or two scales, the understanding of major and minor, Mm -hmm. and they're Mm -hmm. able to take that skill exponentially and put that into their instrument. And I've seen other coders around. I feel like I have to really fight for my knowledge that I have, and I have to really fight to keep it up. And, and that's, you know, that's worked out for me, but it's a lot of work for me to keep my skill sets mm. and invest in those concepts where I feel like I see other coders around, even JP, my co-host, and I, I feel like he picks up one or two concepts and uses them in so much more compounding and interesting ways than me. Right. And I love our industry because it is so skill-based. It's mm. not based on where you went to school mm. or what it like, people are like, let me see your code. Let's do a code review. I want to see you code in the same way that for someone auditioning for a band, it's not like, oh, what school do you went to? It's like, no, I want to hear you play. Let's see your skills. Let's see how you use these concepts. So that was another big one that I've picked up and the distinctions between. And then there's just the idea of it being an art and a science. Mm -hmm. I think out of different arts that I've dabbled with in Mm -hmm. my career, music has this interesting place that there is a right and a wrong, and there is a science to how music is structured. There's very structured rules that can be broken from time to time. And I'm not an amazing musician by, by any means, but you know, there is a major chord, there's a minor chord, and there's a sub-selection of notes you can use. And there is a structured thinking to the way that you're placing this down within this context of rhythm. And when you look at programming, it's a similar way that there's a structure and a syntax to how you must do this and communicate this, but there's 
so much nuance to how you can say it. It's why I love the art of programming. It, it's so incredible. I love that. I love that. That is such a good uh, analogy. That's such a good sort of comparison of, of learning um, a, the guitar, a musical instrument to learning code. I haven't thought of it like that. That's, that's, that's fantastic. My mind's blown. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> that's, that's so cool. Um, so how did you and JP get together? What was the, what was the thing that, um, were you, were you school friends? Were you Oh, well, good question initially. Yeah. yeah, yeah so yeah. actually I met, uh, so I had to rewind to one of those startup weekends that mm -hmm. I said I was going to. So I was first learning to code, trying to be an entrepreneur in code. I was seeking all these different startup weekends and hackathons. At one of those, I met the founder of WizTutor who was trying to build this peer-to-peer -peer tutoring platform. Yeah. And it was Justin who had a high school friend who was mm -hmm. JP, who was a designer. And he's like, hey, you're a coder. I'm going to pair you with this designer and you guys are going to build this thing. Mm -hmm. So it was actually through Startup Weekend, through one of my contacts there, mm -hmm. um, that I was able to meet JP and start working from there. Awesome. So that, that sounds really, really uh, sort of like it was meant to be in that sense. <laughs> I think you so. Know, it's, you, you said before that it, it's all happened through accidents and stuff, but it sounds like it was, yeah, it was, it was a, a defined path almost. Um, so how many episodes of iteration do you guys have under your belt? I went and looked this up. Let me find my note that I wrote <laughs> down. I think the number was about 60, but there's a caveat to that is that we actually deleted our season one, just was, totally nuked it. I was going to ask you about that because that, that was, <laughs> that was uh, something that I heard um, in the, in the recent one uh, about refactoring. Oh yeah. Yeah. We mentioned that. You mentioned that. W what was the deal there? Why did you, why yeah, did you? I don't, I don't know how I feel about that decision overall in hindsight, because I get constant Twitter DMs at least once a week. Someone goes, why does it start with season two? Where's season <laughs> one? The long and short of it is that when we first started the podcast, we didn't really know what lend it, lent itself well to audio. Yeah. And it's hard to talk about code in audio format. We've, we've talked about maybe doing it into a YouTube show, but I think there's something nice about podcasts that they are so portable that mm. we want to lean into that and stay consistent with the audio format. So the long story short is we, we did this book, uh, Domain Driven Design, which is a fantastic book. Mm. But we got really into the weeds in that. I mean, we got really into the weeds. I think it was like 24 episodes plus all about um, domain design, which is essentially how you structure different models and relationships and database relationships, how you name things, mm -hmm. which I love the idea of domain design. I could talk about forever about domain design, but it just wasn't very good is the bottom line. And mm -hmm. I, I want to actually probably in season eight or nine or 10, like maybe three or four books from now, mm -hmm. redo that book in a more concise format. Okay. So take its 24 very thick chapters. The book's like this thick. It's a mm -hmm. gnarly read. Mm -hmm. So take its 24 chapters or so and kind of compress it to maybe five or six episodes. Right. And right. just be smarter about the way we present it. But, and also the production quality was pretty bad. We didn't have any mics at the time. It was echoey rooms. I'm just like, this isn't how I want to present myself. It's interesting because I feel like I'm not somebody who is embarrassed by previous work or old work and I let it live on on the web. That's the internet. Nothing nothing gets deleted. Like why delete sure, old tweets from sure. high school? Like I've got emotional old funny tweets. Like just leave them up. But at the same time, our format really lends itself to people starting at the beginning because they want to hear book one and book two. So I'm like, eh. so that was, that was the reasoning. That's very true. That's very true. I have thought personally of, of going through and deleting all of my first YouTube 
stuff because they were terrible. Sure. Lighting was horrible. <laughs> um, if anyone was to jump on and, and, and go on to one of those things um, and not look at any other, uh, any other stuff, they would have a bad representation mm, as to the channel. Who you are now. Yeah. yeah. And with all of this stuff, there is a reputation, you know, um, so there is a stat, you, you, your standard gets better and better and better, um, hopefully over time. And so if you start sinking down, uh, you do more retakes, you do more, um, alterations and post-production and all that jazz. Whereas at the start, I didn't have any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, there, there is a side of me that wants to delete them, but then there is a side of me that, that that uh, prefers them up because for my benefit of reviewing myself, I, I'm extremely self-critical, extremely self-critical to the, to, to a fault. Um, and I, I like to have something that I can see to see the progress because mm. then if I don't see that, then I just think that, well, this is it. And, and you know, this, this hasn't progressed much, but then if I can look, go back and, and see the first ever, thing I did, then that, that to me is like, yeah, actually I've actually done a quite a, a big journey, big step up. So yeah. 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 I think YouTube lends itself better to that though, because like as a new subscriber, I rarely go back and think what's their first videos and the discovery is a little bit lower there. That's Where podcasts, true. especially when you're kind of serial like us, yeah. yeah, like you really need to hear the first one before the next one mm-hmm. to really understand the books we're going through. Mm. And I think it, part of my choice was that the format of podcasts, I don't know how you're consuming it like depending on your podcast player it'll present you episode one first or it'll present you with the most recent episode first so it's yeah. it's kind of a hard struggle of how to present the podcast well to end consumers yeah i almost wanted to start a new podcast feed for every book or right. like break it down right. some other way yeah yeah to playlist somehow I've, th- I've thought a lot about it and haven't come up with a great solution yeah yeah i must say when i when i started podcasting i i found it very tricky to um sort of categorize things in the same mm-hmm. way I would categorize the the YouTube channel. Like you said, there's no playlists. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it was just a different sort of change of mindset. Perhaps there'll be something in the future that changes podcasts in a more of a little bit more of a topic kind of base stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be uh, nice. Yeah. Um, okay. So do you, do you um, use physical books or do you use eBooks? I use physical books for coding books specifically, but for other like business and self-help books and other content, I use eBooks heavily. And the reason is because code examples just don't carry over well in Kindle formats and other formats I've found, unfortunately. It's nice to actually be able to flip through. And also for recording the episodes, it's nice to be able to mute the mic, flip to that specific (laughs) part of the book. It's a lot easier to reference very quickly than it is the digital book. So for those kind of two reasons, but from like a killing trees standpoint and a logistic standpoint i very much prefer ebooks in general if i can right right cool and i guess with the uh with physical books you're you're able to like put post-it notes on various Mm -hmm. pages and jump to things easier which is nice Yeah. yeah so what is the book that has surprised you the most in terms of like perhaps you bought a book and you were like yeah this isn't this isn't going to help me much but then has actually yeah. changed the way you've done this stuff what? so i definitely i have such an easy answer it's a book called the design of everyday things by don norman which right. is not a software book by any measure but i got it just because i was kind of interested in design it was mentioned on an episode of 99 invisible which is a fantastic podcast about design mm-hmm. and 
So it was a book that I kind of just read for fun. It was a weekend read and it totally revolutionized the way that I approach code and the mm. way that I design software systems mm -hmm. and the way I talk with clients. And the core tenant that changed my mind so much was this idea of the onus of error being put on the responsibility of the designer. Right. And so he has this two chapter, three chapter arc about industrial machine deaths and wow. how he is very bold in his statements about how no one should ever die from an industrial machine. And if there is a machine that kills someone, it is the designer's fault. And there is thousands of deaths every year that happen from industrial machines. And it's just chalked up to, quote, user error. And he's right. like, no, no, no. There's no such thing as user error. There's design error. Right. And it, and I don't know if I fully agree with him that everyone who dies in a tractor, it's the tractor's fault that they died. I mean, people get drunk and drive tractors into lakes, and I don't know whose fault that is. But it made me realize half of my email responses to founders would be like, you're using the software wrong. You're doing it wrong. It totally changed my perspective on how to reference bugs and software requests and what the job of design and a software designer is for the user. Wow. And just coming up yeah. with the tenant and rethinking of software in the context is there is no such thing as user error. There is only design error. Mm. And taking that radical responsibility for my platform mm. completely changed the game in the way I perceive projects mm. and the way I approach projects. And it's so much more of a humble and partnership approach. Mm. And it's it's a it's a it's a it's a point of view that respects the user and holds the user higher than anything else. And I didn't always think that way. I was very much the programmer who's like, well, it's a feature, not a bug, and you're doing it wrong. And why would you not put an at sign in your email? Of course, it's going to break the form. Like that was always me. Right. Yeah. So almost like playing the blame game in the sense that it's not my problem, it's your problem, but I'll fix 100%. it if, if you yeah if you pay for it. Yeah. It's um. That's that's really interesting. I, I, I. What was the book called? What was the book again? It's, it's called The Design of Everyday Things by Don Norman. Fantastic book on design. Right. I'll look that up. I'll look that up. That sounds. But like literally, the book talks about teapots and water faucets and a bowl. Like that's the types of things that it talks about design. Right. But it talks about design in such a a deep way and conceptually yeah. creating something yeah. out of nothing for someone. Yeah. And that's what I do every single day is I have to create something out of nothing for someone. And so it talks about all the different concepts within it and what is understandable design. And like I said, the responsibility of the designer to prevent user error, which was, that, that was the main thing that was so revolutionary to the way that I approach projects. So yeah, that's really interesting. Really, really interesting. That's uh, yeah. How do you go about researching the books that you want to uh uh, use for the for the iteration podcast do you do you um have a selection or topics future books that you're going to be looking at um do you think about certain concepts i mean what how's your procedure process of, of yeah totally great question so we have oftentimes put it to audience vote so we yeah, definitely keep idea. that in mind mm -hmm. we don't we don't always pick the top vote for that season mm -hmm. but we have several times and we definitely use that to like pull our readers and know what's there mm. the other thing that's really important to us is that we're somewhat code agnostic so we try to avoid like mm. a specific book about react native we've mm. done a cup we did one ruby book that was a specific ruby book but it was more about conceptual object-oriented architecture yeah. 
yep. more than it was a book about Ruby. Yep. So we really try to pick books that are more code agnostic, which honestly eliminates a lot of the hot like new books that are out. Because there's a lot of new books and that are out that are very specific for a specific domain mm-hmm. that I that I love to read and I love to get into, but they don't lend themselves well to the format. And then the third one is, does it lend itself well to the format? Can we adapt it to audio? Because there's lots of great books out there that are just, they just don't lend themselves well to audio. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so do you, do you read the whole book before you do start on episode one or do you do it per chapter, per chapter, per chapter? Yeah. Great question. So we have done it both ways. A lot oftentimes the books that we select are ones we have read in the past. Me and JP are both really avid readers. So we've read <laughs> lots of this stuff. And so it's oftentimes going through again, one that we have. And so we'll read it that week and then record the following week to have it fresh in our minds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, for example, the current book, I have never read this edition of it, this refactoring book that we're mm-hmm. going through, the Martin Fowler book. Mm-hmm. I've never read this edition of it, so it's kind of new to me in, mm-hmm. in a new way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and even before, I, I kind of half read it because it was all in Java and I didn't know Java and it wasn't, uh, so so it, it happens both ways. It kind of depends on the book. Right, okay. So um, when you're, when you're lo- asking the audience for um, uh, book ideas and stuff, mm-hmm. um, do you find that a lot of them are asking for particular frameworks or particular programming languages rather than the concepts? Yeah. And that's often why when we haven't picked books, it's because it's for a very specific framework Mm. and I'm open to doing more work for a specific framework, maybe in a different podcast, but this specific thing, we're trying to keep code agnostic, which I don't know if this is the best choice. I mean, at some point we might just want to call it a Ruby on Rails JavaScript podcast because those are both what we know, Mm. but I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of value in keeping the, the, keeping the whole conversation higher level and keeping it more conceptual mm-hmm. so that you can apply this to other things and other different types of code and design in general. I think there's a lot of value in that. I really, yeah, I, I, I certainly agree with that. I mean, um, when I, I listen to the stuff in this office um, whilst I'm coding, and even though you're, you you do talk about uh, JavaScript and, and Ruby and the stuff that I don't necessarily work on on a day-to-day basis, um, it's great to hear that. It's, it's great to have that sort of uh, knowledge and the awareness of that. Um, but also from the, the refactoring uh, episode you did, it, was, it, it reinforced some concepts that I, I was aware of. And in fact, after that show, um, I went and actually wrote some tests. I love it. I was like, I've just written some code. <laughs> Normally I would just sort of like, you know, y- your time's done now, client. Thank yeah. you very much. Um, I'll worry about that on Monday morning. But um, yeah, I, I, I thought, hang on a minute. No, I need to test this. I need to. And then mm. I was thinking about how how to easily test this as I was writing the code. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it was so happy. <laughs> it was just, it was reinforcement. It was reinforcement. Everybody knows that you need to test your work. Everybody knows that. Um, but there is this, if nobody's like talking to you behind you mm-hmm. saying, test your code, test your code, then it's very easy not to. It's very easy yeah. to just sort of like put in um, stuff that is is not necessarily going to benefit the project in the long term. And you, you, you mentioned something, I think, um, in that, in that episode about the, the, the way in which um, you, sorry, it's the having short term pain compared mm. to long-term pain. 
um, <laughs> you know, it was, it was, I, I guess it was, I couldn't move on to the next Jira task because I was doing a, a test for the bug that I, to be honest, I should have done TDD to be honest, but I didn't, but I could have moved on to the next Jira task. I could have, um, ticked that off. I could have put that into, um, my, my weekly dev report to the client. Um, but I didn't. Uh, move on to the next thing because I was writing a test. And because it was mm-hmm. close to the end of the day, um, I, I didn't have time to get on to the next thing. But now I know that the unit tests will run Monday morning. It will it will work as it worked beforehand. And the client that I'm with, there's other developers that I will pull code down from. So I can mm-hmm. now double check the code that i written currently yeah. works, the stability of it. And that, that's what you were mentioning was that it was the short-term pain versus long-term pain. Um, because had I have not done that, um, I, there, there was a, a possibility perhaps that, uh, when I pull down code on Monday morning, the developer may have done something in his code that has broken the code that I put in. And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't have been aware of that. Wouldn't have been mm. aware of that. Um, and also with the refactoring, it was the, it was the, the reinforcement of micro, uh, micro restructuring. It was, mm-hmm. it wasn't, you're, you're not adding a feature. You're not removing features. You're not deleting features. Um, but you are altering the way the code is more readable. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, it, it, anyone listening here, I certainly recommend the iteration podcast, um, because it's, it's helped me out a lot. Um, and also I'm a remote developer. Um, I work alone in this office for most of the time, it does get a little bit lonely. So when you're, when you're talking, when you're listening to someone talking about code, which is not necessarily related to what you're working on, it is nice. It's sort of this background noise that you can sort of dip in and out of. You're not, you're not, um, you're not sort of concentrating on it a hundred percent of the time. It's not like a a Netflix thing that you're sat down with a a bowl of snacks <laughs> watching. It's just something that you can sort of dip in and out of. And I think that's a, it's a fantastic resource. And talking about resources, um, are there any resources that you can recommend for, for self-taught devs uh, in terms of books? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, my biggest thing with books and making specific recommendations, I'm more than happy to do so. Pay me on Twitter or wherever and I can do so. Mm-hmm. And I could rattle off some titles. But the biggest thing is just start reading. You right. can get something out of any book, even if it's not specifically in your language. And I feel like when I first started to code, I was kind of afraid and te- like hesitant to jump yeah. into things. Yeah. Because I'm just like looking at domain-driven design for the first time. It's this big, thick book. Yeah, yeah. And I read it the first time and I had 10, 20% comprehension, mm-hmm. kind of skimmed some of the chapters because mm-hmm. I didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. But then within the context of two or three months, I found myself understanding and utilizing some of those concepts before. Right. Your brain holds on to things more than you realize. And so I think in general, just have the audacity to just jump into specific books. And I even the other day I was at the library, just randomly needed a new place to work. So I was at the library and I just started picking up some of the older programming books that were there. There was a mm. Java book and some other things. And even just thumbing through those, I realized there was so much great stuff mm. to be had in them. Mm-hmm. There's just a lot of great content out there. And mm. I think the other thing is, is don't be afraid sometimes to skim a book or give up on a book. Like that's okay. You don't have to, just because you picked a book up and started chapter one doesn't yeah. mean you have to stick with it yeah. to the end. Yeah. There's value in that sometimes and picking the one you're going to invest in for sure. Um, but you know, specifically it's hard to make recommendations as well because very few are code agnostic. 
a lot of the books that I've gotten a lot of, out of are very specific for a specific language or framework. But okay. that, all that said, I think The Pragmatic Programmer is a fantastic pick for anyone to read, mm -hmm. whether where you're at in your development career. And it's code agnostic and has so many great soft skills and general skills that's fantastic. And I think already I would recommend refactoring. Mm -hmm. um, probably not for a junior dev, but someone mm -hmm. who has maybe a mid-level it's a fantastic book to approach. So those two are off the top of my head, ones I would recommend. What about awesome. you? Do you have any good resources for fresh coders? Um, well, I do a lot of um, video stuff. So a, mm -hmm. a lot of the the, the, the um, recommendations I can give are to uh, look for user groups who have YouTube channels and mm. um, watch their previous talks. Because That's a cool tip, watching talks on YouTube. Yeah, because um, you like conferences cost a lot of money and uh, you know it's not only the ticket price but it's also the the price of getting a airfare if you if it's far away but often they have a youtube channel and often you can actually listen to um to the speakers and uh, and learn and often they have the questions at the end which is which i find really really useful um and also just going to a user group as well is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Even if you're not necessarily um, a coder right away, you know, you're, you're, mm -hmm. you're thinking about being a coder. You can still go to a user group. There's no, there is no barrier of entry here. There's no requirements. There's nothing to say that you can't go to a user group without being a programmer, without writing a single line of code. Um, and often there's people there who, who um, have a, very wide variety of 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 interests they're not necessarily the um uh, uh, working on the language that the the user group group is is talking about um maybe they they touch upon it or maybe they're just doing some networking so it's a fantastic social mm -hmm. way um and it's great for net, like i said networking it's great for uh, passing around your your twitter handles and your business cards and and so forth absolutely like, as a free in the states here in the States, we have meetup.com, which yeah. is heavily used for programming groups and small things like that. When I was first learning, I remember I did a ton of meetups and there would just be like, learn Ruby together, learn JavaScript together. And we'd meet in a Starbucks yeah. and just code together. And those were fantastic resources when I was starting out. Those were absolutely fantastic. And I think, you know, there's a lot of great online. Treehouse is one that I've actually gotten a lot of early in my career, which is, I think it's 25 bucks a month, which isn't mm -hmm. too bad. It's free for a month. And they have very structured kind of courses and content. Mm -hmm. The other one actually that I'd recommend is onemonth.com. I think right. their pricing just went way up, but okay. that was actually one of the first online things that I went through that I felt like I got traction in my learning because right. it was, you know, they say take 30 days take an hour a day and you'll have something built right and like it, that's what i did and i got so much out of that initial um journey when i was in my coding journey so those are a couple other resources that i found to be super helpful yeah 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 i'm trying to um remember the author's names of some of the books that i've read um i, I have difficulty with the names but there is <laughs> one too. one called the system bible the system bible that was recommended yeah i was recommended it I was actually giving a talk at a user group on software complexity and I was recommended uh, that book by one of the people who was listening to the talk. Um, and it's, so, so I must confess, I haven't read the whole thing. I've only read like the first sort of half. It's a, it's a very, um, the first half is, is a little bit sort of um, downbeat in the sense mm -hmm. that, that you're, you, you kind of read it and you're thinking, what, why am I, doing this it's so com complicated um but there's some really great bits in that like yeah. um like software expands to the to its known universe and it gets really deep 
really deep. Um, and yeah, I found it fascinating. Absolutely fascinating to, to I'll, I will definitely pick it up again. Um, I think that was John, Jonathan Gale, Gal, I think maybe I hope that's correct. Um, but yeah, systems Bible is, is fantastic. It's got a big red border around the front cover. Um, yeah. But to be honest, I don't necessarily read a lot of books because my I find it very difficult to um, learn the code from reading code on a black and white piece of paper. Mm, um, yeah. M- my my eyes prefer the uh, the colors of the IDE. And that's probably something to do with the laziness or some dyslexic thing that I've got. Um, but I just prefer to to have the IDE where I can, I can play with it. That's the problem with, sure. with books. You can't play with it. You know, you, mm-hmm. can't, you can't change things. And I think I have a benefit there because I'm every single day in software systems that I control the architecture of. So yeah. if I read something last night, I can try it in the system that next day. And yeah. so I have that benefit of continuously implementing things that I'm learning and mm-hmm. re- like reading and understanding. And I get that not everybody has that benefit. Maybe you don't have full ownership of your code base. But mm-hmm. so you're mentioning something that I think is so important is when you learn a new concept, apply it, apply it, apply it, apply yes. it. Yes. Try it in the context you can try it, even if it's just spinning up a little code yeah. pen or a REPL and kind of playing with that refactor and contriving an example. It's super important to get your hands dirty with the concept because yeah. that's that's really how it sticks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have I have an absolute ton of ebooks uh, that I'm yet to to work my way through. Um, the uh, there's this 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 uh, company called the Humble Bundle, and they oh, have yeah. they have this uh, this ebook sort of thing. Uh, once in a while, they'll do a sort of a computing sort of section. Um, I got a load of stuff from um, O'Reilly and Pact and all that stuff, um, all on the iPad that are, I'm just waiting to go through. Um, awesome. But they are they are mostly tailored to, um, to languages, libraries, frameworks, mm-hmm. rather than the actual concepts of programming. And I think that's There's- really... Sorry, go on. No, there's just, I was going to say, there's one recent ebook that I got that has been absolutely mind blowing and it's all about UI in general and user experience. And it's called refactoring UI. And it took me like two hours to go through. And Mm -hmm. my design work is, it's like 20% better across board. It has just these conceptual approaches to doing UI and UX work. Fantastic. That was a fantastic read. Couldn't recommend that more strongly. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And that was by, I forgot the guy's name. I don't remember off the top of my head, but it's the, it's the same guy that you see these viral tweets of these amazing, it's Steve Schrodinger. Right. You see these amazing viral tweets that shows before and after, and it's just all of his tweaks. He basically just compiled that into this ebook of just consistent rules. And it's incredible. Yeah. 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 That's interesting because we, I mean, we've talked mostly about code books, right? From yeah, a coding have, perspective yeah. rather than from a, a usability, user experience way. I guess the best way of conveying that information is to actually display that information in, in book form. For um, sure. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Is there any is there any other genre that you that you read apart from uh Cody books? <laughs> Just business books. I read so many business books, too many business books, to be honest. And mm. then every once in a while, I'll, di- I'll dive into some a little bit of classic sci-fi here and there. But I-, I wish I was a more avid reader of things that don't have a utility, but I'm not. So that's okay. <laughs> no worries. Um, and for, for iteration, the podcast, um, mm. when is the show 
on, you know, what days do, can people uh, look yeah, out Yeah, we that? publish new episodes every Friday. Uh, you can just go to iterationpodcast.com to subscribe and learn more about the show. Yeah. It's just a standard podcast. We generally publish weekly. When we're in an active book, we are every single Friday, but then sometimes we take two or three weeks off between books. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've probably picked up on that, that we kind of jump into the seasons like that. Yeah. And yeah, so it's iterationpodcast.com. And I, I so appreciate all of your kind words about the show. I really appreciate it. No, that's that's awesome. I'm I'm so glad that you're on. It's uh, it's been a pleasure. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, to speak with you today, John. And um, I wish you all the best of luck for iteration and better as well. Please do keep in touch. And thank you ever so much, everyone, for watching on the YouTubes and of course listening on the podcasts. I'm going to put as many links as I possibly can in the show notes to all the things that we've mentioned. But before we go, John, what's your Twitter handle? Oh, it's John Salzarulo, which is a mouthful. Probably the easiest way to find me is better.dev. So better.dev is my development firm and we're right there. And if you want to reach out, hello at uh, withbetter.com if you want to reach out via email. And actually we are hiring right now. We're looking for user experience designer as well as looking for Ruby on Rails guys. So awesome. feel free to reach out to me. Hello at withbetter.com or better.dev and you can just follow things from there. I'll put all of those links in the show notes too. Um, hey, thanks. And, and Appreciate that. All that. No problem. No problem. Well, thank you ever so much again. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, John. And happy coding, everyone. Speak to you again soon. Cheers. Bye.